welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. What's new in immigration? Oh, I don't know. The Senate's bill appears to have blown up before it could even begin, and the D.C. Circuit held that the former president of the United States, who doesn't love immigration, is not immune from criminal prosecution. What's new with you? Also this week, the Ninth Circuit amended its quite non-citizen adverse Figueroa Ocoa decision from episode 165. But, as that's a jurisdictional decision, and that's still quite non-citizen adverse even after amendment, I respectfully direct you to episode 165. I hope all my Florida man and Florida woman colleagues enjoyed the ALS South Florida conference this week. Sorry I had to miss it. See you at the Federal Bar Association's Immigration Conference in Salt Lake City, if you fancy the trip. Three cases for everyone this week, starting again with that appellate body in Falls Church. First is Matter of Bernardo, published by the BIA. I thought I'd start us off with the BIA, save that fun Tenth Circuit decision for last. This is another wonky I-751 decision out of the Board of Immigration Appeals. The BIA held that, quote, when a petition to remove the conditions on residence is withdrawn before USCIS prior to adjudication, the immigration judge ordinarily cannot review the merits of that petition in removal proceedings, end quote. So that's the holding. How do we get there? Well, I-751s are, of course, the forms that must be filed by conditional lawful permanent residents within six months of the expiration of that conditional LPR's second year holding conditional LPR status. Non-citizens become conditional rather than full-fledged LPRs when they apply to adjust status based on a marriage that is less than two years old. For such people, they must, essentially, prove that their marriage was valid at inception 
twice. Once when they get the conditional LPR status, and again, two years later, when they petition to remove it by filing a Form I-751. That filing is supposed to be joint, both spouses. But there are exceptions and waivers to the joint filing requirement. But all of them require a showing that the marriage was valid at inception. Q. Leonardo DiCaprio If the petition is denied, it gets sent to immigration court for re-adjudication de novo. The BIA held a month and a half ago that generally, immigration judges must adjudicate that petition when it's sent to immigration court, and that they shouldn't terminate proceedings. Enter Mr. Bernardo, who is from Argentina. He married a U.S. citizen, got a conditional green card, and then they jointly filed an I-751 petition to remove the condition. But before the form was adjudicated by USCIS, his wife withdrew the petition, saying that it was a fraudulent marriage. Not always true, but never a good accusation. And the couple didn't divorce, though. USCIS then terminated Mr. Bernardo's conditional LPR status and initiated removal proceedings where, as expected, Mr. Bernardo requested that the IJ review the denial of the joint petition de novo. But now Mr. Bernardo had a problem. The IJ wouldn't review it because the IJ determined it was no longer a joint petition. Mr. Bernardo's wife wasn't on board. And that was a big problem for Mr. Bernardo because all of those exceptions that I mentioned require either battery or extreme cruelty by the petitioning spouse, the death of the petitioning spouse, or divorce from the petitioning spouse, none of which apparently applied to Mr. Bernardo. To be honest, in just reading this decision, maybe he should have considered just divorcing his spouse, and then he could have applied for a waiver of the joint filing requirement with USCIS and requested a continuance of removal proceedings until USCIS adjudicated that waiver, as is his right under BIA precedent. But that's not what happened, and I'm sure Mr. Bernardo had his reasons. Mr. Bernardo pursued the joint petition before the immigration judge and then appealed the IJ's refusal to consider it to the BIA. And that's what we have here, and the BIA affirmed the immigration judge. Under the BIA's 1994 decision matter of Mendez, quote, when one of the parties withdraws support for the petition prior to adjudication, the petition is no longer a joint petition and is considered not filed, end quote. So again, really, what Mr. Bernardo should have done is everything I just mentioned immediately after his wife withdrew support and before USCIS even ruled on the joint petition. But again, even if he hadn't, and even if he had waited until removal proceedings had been initiated and then refiled with USCIS requesting a waiver of the joint filing requirement, the IJ should have let that process play out, as I understand the law. Anyway, though, to the BIA and under matter of Mendez, there was no actual petition pending before the immigration judge to consider. Matter of Mendez says it was considered not filed. Under such circumstances, quote, the immigration judge ordinarily cannot review the merits of that petition in removal proceedings. Thus, the respondent's Form I-751 petition was not properly before the immigration judge, end quote. Rough. Although a bit confusingly to me, the BIA leaves open the possibility that an IJ could have nevertheless had authority to determine whether Mr. Bernardo's wife withdrew the petition under duress or coercion. I must admit I am a bit unsure how an IJ would have such authority given what the BIA just held about such a petition not even being considered filed. 
But in any event, to the BIA, Mr. Bernardo didn't provide sufficient evidence in support of any duress or coercion here. But the legal question remains open, and it's interesting to contemplate. This, by the way, despite the fact that it appears Mr. Bernardo was trying to subpoena his wife or someone else with knowledge of how all this played out to prove his case, a motion that the IJ denied and which the BIA also declined to review. All of it means that Mr. Bernardo lost his case and his conditional LPR status has indeed been terminated as the agency has now made its final ruling. But it's all got me wondering. If anyone from USCIS or the Immigration Court is willing to email me about this, I'd be most appreciative. USCIS always does what it did here. They ostensibly terminate the non-citizen's conditional LPR status and then place the non-citizen in removal proceedings. But to me, that's not entirely right. Mr. Bernardo remained a conditional LPR until the IJ denied his I-751. He had all the rights and privileges of an LPR and couldn't be removed until the IJ said so. So why does USCIS always say in their decisions that they are terminating the conditional status? And why does the NTA always make that allegation? Thereby requiring me to awkwardly say something like, Your Honor, we don't contest that USCIS refused to remove the condition, but we contest the NTA allegation that conditional status has been terminated. If I'm wrong, let me know, and I'll note it on a future episode and we'll stop being awkward in court. But I don't think I'm wrong. Let me know! And that is Matter of Bernardo. Next is Patel v. Jadot, published by the Sixth Circuit on February 9th, 2024. Here's a unique one. And it's a short week and a relatively short decision, so two important qualifications for me to reach down and do a litigation case met. Mr. and Mrs. Patel, no, not those Patels, applied for U-Visas, which have a backlog of approximately 81 years at present. Maybe? Who really knows? Quote, Congress reserves these visas for victims of crimes in the United States who have suffered substantial physical or mental abuse, end quote. And here, Mr. Patel qualified, quote, for a U-Visa after two men in Arizona assaulted him and after he assisted in the investigation. End quote. After waiting 14 months for adjudication, the Patels hired one of the best immigration litigation persons in the biz and filed an Administrative Procedure Act challenge, alleging that USCIS had unreasonably delayed the U-Visa determinations. Their federal complaint starting off the lawsuit was not sealed, and it disclosed personal identifying information, and it discussed the assault, among other things, as you would expect a federal complaint to do. Two months later, USCIS granted the visas. How about that? Still need to wait for green cards, though, if I'm not mistaken, but no small feat. And so the Department of Justice moved to dismiss this case as moot. In doing so, however, DOJ counsel, quote, attached an exhibit that verified that the agency had granted the Patel's visa application, end quote, which had at least some of the identifying information of the Patel's on it. The problem with that is under 8 U.S.C. section 1367A2, quote, Federal law prohibits the disclosure of information relating to non-citizens who are U-Visa applicants and recipients, end quote. 
Heck, USCIS even restricts the notifications that they send me about my own clients when they are TU and VAWA cases, right? Seems that DOJ counsel asked the court administrator to seal the filing the next day and filed an official motion as well right then and there. I'm sure it was promptly sealed. Quote, The Patels responded to the motion to seal by seeking $20,000 in penalties for the director's failure to seal the exhibit at the onset. End quote. The district court dismissed the complaint as moot and denied the penalties motion. The Sixth Circuit affirmed the district court. Although it seems like the Patels would have won if the court had found that DOJ willfully violated Section 1367. And it looks like that $20,000 request was not an arbitrary number. Under the statute, quote, anyone who willfully uses, publishes, or permits information to be disclosed in violation of this section or who knowingly makes a false certification under Section 239E of the INA shall be subject to appropriate disciplinary action and subject to a civil money penalty of not more than $5,000 for each violation, end quote. So I guess the Patel's alleged four violations? But the statute has an exception. It, quote, shall not be construed as preventing disclosure of information in connection with judicial review of a determination in a manner that protects the confidentiality of such information, end quote. The Sixth Circuit seems sympathetic to this alone winning the day for DOJ on the penalties motion, particularly as the federal rules of civil procedure were amended in 2007 to limit public access to immigration cases anyway. So that's why it's always such a pain in the butt to access the cases on PACER. 2007. But on the other hand, it seems that that's only for remote access through PACER. The public can still get all the documents and filings from an immigration case by going into the federal courthouse physically and requesting them. And in any event, confidentiality in filings is still supposed to be protected. Well then, what about the fact that the Patels themselves seem to have disclosed all or some of this information in their initial complaint? Not sufficiently argued, it seems, said the Sixth Circuit. So, willfulness. Quote, The parties agree that whatever willful means in this setting, it does not extend to negligence. We agree as well. The word willful usually refers to action that is intentional or knowing or voluntary as distinguished from accidental, end quote. So that's a nice little quote to remember for mens rea in the Sixth Circuit. To the court then, this was negligence at most. Indeed, DOJ counsel tried to get it sealed almost immediately, if you recall. The Sixth Circuit concludes by throwing some serious shade on whether a penalty challenge like this can be brought at all, and then affirm the district court. But hey, the Patels have their U-visas. And that is Patel v. Jadot. Burned out with admin work? Most immigration lawyers are. That's why over 90 law firm owners have chosen Staffy to help them with the legal, administrative, marketing, and client-facing work. Staffy's goal is to help immigration lawyers live a more balanced life while seeing their law firms grow and scale. And they do that by providing a service that includes top-notch bilingual virtual staff with the HR support that will alleviate the law firm owner from onboarding, continuous management, and training of their virtual teams. Concentrate on this strategic work and let the team at Staffy help you with the rest. I have a Staffy and I couldn't be happier. 
Schedule a free initial consultation with Staffy at GetStaffy.com and claim $500 off by using the code STAFFY2024. That's S-T-A-F-I-2024. Meaning as promised, we conclude with the Tenth Circuit, United States v. Devereux, published on February 6, 2024. It's a sentence enhancement crime of violence case. The Tenth Circuit has held that the federal crime of assault resulting in serious bodily injury in violation of 18 U.S.C. section 113A6 is not, I repeat not, a crime of violence. That's why a federal district court judge had enhanced U.S. citizen Mr. Devereux's felon in possession of a firearm conviction below. But the assault crime is not a crime of violence, so it's being sent back for resentencing. And here is why. Section 113A6 essentially punishes assault in a federal place. Like in U.S. maritime waters or, say, a post office? The provision enhances the punishment if the assault results in serious bodily injury. But like so many of these assault statutes in states, the underlying action is still simple assault. Under the categorical approach, then, that means that the focus of analysis is on federal simple assault itself. That it resulted in serious bodily injury does not change the legal elements required to convict. Again, it just increases the punishment. So what is required of Section 113A Assault under federal law? Kind of almost doesn't matter because what we do know is that under long-standing precedent, Section 113A6 Assault, the assault at issue here, can be committed recklessly. And after the Supreme Court's Bourdain decision, quote, a reckless offense categorically does not have as an element the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force against the person of another, end quote, meaning that it can't be a federal sentence enhancement or immigration crime of violence. That's Bourdain. And honestly, although this is the Tenth Circuit saying this, this is a federal crime, and I bet this would be the case in every circuit. If you have a client who is unfortunate enough to receive a federal assault conviction, even one that results in serious bodily injury, take note, whenever or wherever you are, to steal joyful attorney podcast Laura Kelly's tagline. The district court judge here, of course, knew this, but believed that the statute was divisible into two separate crimes, one that requires an intentional mental state, or mens rea, and another that requires mere recklessness that would take it out of being a crime of violence. But as is so often the case with mens rea, that was not correct. The statute is not divisible as to mental state. There is only one crime, and it can be committed recklessly. On this, by the way, the Tenth Circuit cites to the Third and Eighth Circuits, in a footnote, of course, to relay that, quote, other circuits addressing different state statutes that expressly include several mentes rea have determined that those mentes rea are means rather than elements, end quote. The Tenth Circuit goes on for many pages about what makes a statute divisible and what doesn't, and a lot of it comes back to the Supreme Court's seminal Mathis decision. I'm not going to go all into that because, again, a lot of it is just the application of Mathis, but I don't think there are that many Tenth Circuit decisions explaining the Tenth Circuit's view of divisibility, so keep this case in mind for your divisibility case law, Western state practitioners. But then again, how about this quote? Quote, 
Ordinarily, a statute is indivisible unless we can tell with certainty that the alternative statutory components constitute elements rather than means, end quote. That sure sounds like a presumption of indivisibility to me. How about you, Tenth Circuit practitioners? The Tenth Circuit says that twice, by the way. I've got this bulleted in my case outline as presumption of indivisibility. You know you're going to be hearing this later. That presumption was not rebutted, shall I say, here. To determine divisibility to the Tenth Circuit, the statute wasn't much help. Although it has eight different likely divisible subsections, those subsections aren't divisible as to mens rea. They're simply different ways to commit assault. So while the statute might be divisible, it wasn't relevantly so. Each distinct way to commit the offense could be committed with the same spectrum of possible mental states, so it's no help in the relevant question before the court as to crime of violence, which again depends on mens rea. Turning then to case law, where, as I said before, the Tenth Circuit and likely all federal circuits have long held that this federal assault statute can be committed recklessly. More to the point, the Tenth Circuit has deemed Section 113A a general intent crime, which means it's a crime where, quote, an act was done voluntarily and intentionally, and not because of mistake or accident, end quote. Hmm. That actually doesn't sound like recklessness. But the Model Penal Code explained the Tenth Circuit is more specific and makes clear that a, quote, general intent crime like assault can be committed by a defendant acting with three of the four mentes re that the code recognizes, purpose, knowledge, and recklessness, end quote. In aligning with the Model Penal Code, the Tenth Circuit has agreed in the past that the federal assault crime can be committed with a mental state as low as recklessness. General intent is always a bit confusing to me. I guess the way to square this is to think of it this way. The person needs to intend to commit an act, but need not intend that the act be assault, even though it ultimately results in an assault. The act, like, say, running around a supermarket and flailing one's arms like a maniac, can simply be reckless to the fact that an assault might occur, based on your intentional act of running around the produce aisle like a crazy person. That's recklessness, and it's not a crime of violence, says the Supreme Court in Bourdain, but it would suffice for a federal assault conviction if, say, that supermarket was run by the federal government and you flailed into somebody. Other Tenth Circuit precedent and the pattern jury instructions from other circuits on this federal crime further indicate that the mental state is an indivisible means for conviction. A jury need not agree whether the defendant intended to assault knowingly assaulted, or simply recklessly assaulted. So it's not a crime of violence, and Mr. Devereux's sentence can't be enhanced on that basis. And by the way, it doesn't matter that Mr. Devereux almost surely committed his crime intentionally. That's how the game is played. From a legal analytical standpoint, I very much enjoy this stuff, as maybe you can tell. And this... I'm not going to lie. Every time I see a court use the plural of mens rea to discuss two or more different mental states in these decisions, I chuckle. It just seems so unnecessarily formal and Latin. Well, it looks like even the Tenth Circuit is chuckling a bit, deeming it worthy to footnote that, quote, the parties use the phrase mentes rea, which is the plural of mens rea. We follow suit, end quote. Blame it on the parties. 
First listener of the podcast to send me proof of the use of the word mentes re in a brief gets a coveted podcast sticker. And that includes you, Immigration Court and BIA listeners. Redacted, of course. And that is United States v. Devereux. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all, and follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, or send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M, Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.